okay, so this is the guest journey. How do we score that? And I think scoring spaces is probably one of the most exciting aspects of my career so far and continues to be. I'm David Kepron, and this is Next Level Experience Design. Today, my guest is Tom Middleton. He's a, an English electronic recording artist, sound engineer, uh, designer, composer, music producer, remixer, and DJ, who started his musical career uh, in training as a classical cellist. He, soon after doing that, was, I guess, born into the musical world during the, uh, would it be acid jazz revolution? Um, electronic music was something that you um, stumbled into. And then uh, after doing a number of electronic music uh, gigs and writing his own music and uh, launching music compilations under, a, I guess, was, was Evolution your own label? Record label, yes. Yeah, yes, it was, indeed. right. As a music producer and, and remixer and DJ, he has this interesting eclectic approach to music, right? Coming from the, the classically trained cellist background and this, you know, DJ rave music, electronic, you know, music producer, which is already, it's, it's pretty interesting. But what I loved about an article that I read or one of the things in your bio said, the BBC described your music as a voyage of discovery full of originality and eclecticism, which I think is really intriguing from the point of view of where you take in your musical career from the classical training to the DJ house music, electronica kind of world into now what is a really intriguing opportunity to look at how music can fundamentally change the way we feel about ourselves and in our bodies. Having that as an introduction, I welcome sound master <laughs> Tom Middleton to the Next Level Experience Design podcast. Tom, thanks for being here. David, it's an honor and a privilege to be talking with you. Um, it's so exciting to obviously connect with uh, individuals that are so interested in the world beyond uh, their current kind of line of, of, uh, of work and interest. And you know, this wonderful synergy from, from connecting last year at uh, um, uh, Bethesda <laughs> and right. the conversations that have happened sort of since then. Um, and, and yes, wonderful. Thank you very much for having me on. You know, you were uh, one of the guests um, at Marriott's uh, Innovation Days. Um, yourself and, and our mutual friend, Ari Peralta. And I, I quite by accident stumbled upon you. I think I, I sat in on a, one of the lectures that you were doing and I was fully immersed in trying to understand how sound affects our body. I have two sons who are musicians. I have a wife who is a classically trained pianist and also a composer. So I'm around music all day long and I love music. I and mean, it's one of those things that really, uh, I know I ride my bike faster when I listen to great music. I paint and I get into the flow state much faster when I'm listening to music. Um, and so it's, and I'm around music all day long. So I think this conversation is gonna hit on a number of very interesting ideas. I want to first start with this pandemic that we're in, and we're in the middle of, uh, I don't even know it's in the middle, who knows where the end of it is, but we're in this COVID-19 pandemic, the world is effectively shut down, and I can tell you that I have probably not felt as much stress in my life as I have felt over the past five months. I have a muse, um, that sort of mindfulness and meditation training device that you put on your head. And I know the power of music. And when I'm in a meditation state, I'm always trying to focus 
on the beat of the drum. You know, it's a sort of biofeedback device in the sense, or neurobiofeedback, right? So I'm listening to music and I'm trying to regulate uh, vagal tone and my heart rate and my breathing and all those kinds of things. And it seems to me that it really works. Absolutely. And that I think the world of music is becoming increasingly used as a mediator or mitigator for anxiety. And is that true? Certainly in this period where we're all suffering from acute anxiety in some way that we are discovering that music is one of these things that can actually help us reduce that sense of anxiety about not knowing where we're going. Oh, 100%. You hit the nail on the head there. And, and it's very interesting. I myself have sort of sensed my, uh, my state going from uh, parasympathetic, calm, cool, and collected to sympathetic, quite you know, stressed out, uh, adrenaline courses or going through the roof for various reasons. So interestingly, there's a lot of statistics about you know, the usage of music over these last few months. And a lot of the DSPs, the streaming platforms, have seen a huge kind of increase in their usage and con the consumption of music as a tool, as we say, to mitigate anxiety and stress, overwhelm, burnout. Um, fantastic, because, you know, if you think about it, it it's this universal language that um, connects everyone together. And we all have these go-to playlists, um, pieces of music that um, effectively are the, the equivalent of an, an oral happy place, the audio happy place, if you like. Um, and, and we return to these in, in times of crisis. I find that this piece of music albums that I'll just go back to that I know are going to deliver every single time I hear them. Pat Matheny, just listening to the, the beautiful lyricality in, in how he performs. And I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about, you know, the, um, the, the conversation between Lyle and, and Pat when they're performing together. Things like that. Chopin, Vaughan Williams, you know, incredibly epic um, uh, classical works to, you know, the minimal beauty of Chopin. You know, th these things that, to me, deliver uh, this sort of uh, emotional or audio duvet if you like of comfort and safety and i think in a time of crisis we need things to to make us feel safe again because the uncertainty the overwhelm of you know what is going to happen next we just don't know that uncertainty drives our um state uh, right into this sort of sympathetic fight flight you know ready for action we are triggered by the media we're triggered by everything that we're exposed to right now and so we need these tools and for me what better than you know music to turn to in, in these sort of crazy times and to see that everyone around the world is also using music as this great tool to help um, recalibrate the, the, the nervous system. So what I'm curious about that is that is it ubiquitous or is it the same across all areas of the world, uh, racial groups, cultural groups, or does each cultural group seem to have its own affinity towards certain tones that are going to do the thing that you're suggesting? Well, if we sort of think about sort of the anthropological nature of music and the tribalism of the species, we used to use music as a, a means for storytelling and communicating information, passing information. So it's in our DNA, you know, it's ingrained in us, you know, the fact that the first thing we're exposed to is a heartbeat in the womb, you know, that pulse, that syncopation. It's in our blood, it's in our bodies, we are resonant, vibratory uh, organisms, if you like, you know, on a cellular level. We are fundamentally frequencies, the um, combination of frequencies manifest as a sort of physicality. Um, and, and the fact that wherever you go around the world, people use the, this beautiful you know, starting point, which is the human voice. You know, mm. the, uh, we start mm -hmm. with the sounds that we make. 
and um, proto-language was in fact more musical than the articulation we have now. And that I find fascinating that, you know, the original tool was slightly more rhythmically musical. Um, so we're all going to be using this power of sound that we decode as music, um, often harmoniously, um, to, to deliver these effects naturally, instinctively. You know, if you think about um, chanting, mantra, um, this is something that innately you find a particular frequency within you that seems to resonate apart in, in here. You might use uh, woo-woo terminology and say, oh, I found the, you know, the, the heart chakra frequency. However, you know, as a, uh, someone that's coming from science, I'd like to think that maybe there is you know, part of the body that has a resonant frequency that's around about the frequency we're talking about. Great. Mm. And if you tune into that, um, it's very powerful, you know, the humming, chanting. If you think about um, parents and this incredibly natural thing they do with their babies, which is start to kind of rock and hum and sing or lullaby. And, and, and in doing that, you've automatically kind of conveyed this very powerful feeling and emotion through resonation, you know, your little one next to your chest. So I think it comes down to that. It is universal. You know, sound and frequency is universal as a tool for communicating emotion and feeling and taking us to a, a safe and comfortable space. There's so much in there. Um, one is that I very clearly remember uh, when we had our first son. And he used, um, at a very early age, drumming as a regulator. Uh, we'll get into talking about vagal tone um, in, in a little while. Um, but he used drumming as a way to, to regulate himself. There was a proprioceptive part of that. But there was also the rhythmic part of that that was he was able to use to calm himself down. And still does, I think. And, and so he turned this great, uh, this need to have a sense of calming in his body into a professional career, which has been brilliant. So he's played with the National Youth Jazz Orchestra and he's a number of other things. Uh, he's always used that sound tone. And I, I do very clearly remember when he was very young, I came up with a little, you know, hum song that I would sing to him as we rocked back and forth. And that was that it was sort of lower, a little bit, slightly lower register. I could feel it resonating mm. in my in my chest. And so when his head would have been against my chest, I imagine he would have felt those vibrations as well. Is there a hertz or a frequency or a decibel level that we find most calming? Well, very interesting. Um, a project I worked on um, beginning of the year with our esteemed friend, Ari Peralta, um, for um, Nissan. So it was called the Dream Drive Project. For Nissan, the auto, the, yeah. the yes, the uh, uh, the Leaf electric vehicle, part of their, their campaign, and it's an interesting campaign because um, we looked at which frequencies seem to affect um, babies in terms of helping induce the sort of state of sleep, and actually, right, there are some very sort of uh, almost infrasonic low-level frequencies in the, in the lower regions of the frequency spectrum that that seem to create. Um, we talk about white noise, but I would say. There is different colors of noise, brownian, red noise, pink, gray, that deliver different effects. And a combustion engine vehicle has a lot of this complex um, uh, multiband frequency in it. Uh, so along with the vibration of the wheels, um, the movement of the car, there's a simulation of what happens when you're rocking a baby. Mm -hmm. So if you think of that, mm, the, the low level hum, that is what we're talking about. 
And, and so we did this sort of bit of research to try and find out you know, what's going on with the frequencies here. We looked at a combustion engine and I was able to pinpoint the frequencies that you know, the gear changes and, and a journey, a typical dream drive, which is what parents would use eight to 10 minutes to help lull their, their child to sleep. So if you think about what one would do naturally is the rocking and placing the child next to the chest. And I mean, I remember I was, it was almost like a seesaw kind of sound. I can't even remember what it was, but it was very simple. I made up something, I improvised a very simple two or three note um, lullaby. And it seemed to do the trick with, with, with my kids. And I think we don't even know where it comes from. It's just something that happens. Um, and it feels like it's been handed down. We've inherited this ability to, to heal, if you want to call it that, this sort of sound therapy just through um, proximity um, and, and we know that the, the power of, of uh, you know, touch skin to skin is a really powerful thing as well. So to create a sort of safe space using frequency and vibration um, through the chest is, uh, is very interesting. And right now, working on some other projects that uh, maybe we can talk about a little bit later that, that also integrate the sort of power of delivering um, uh, vibration through the, the chest plate sternum through to the vagal nerve. So we can, we can talk about that in a while. It's quite interesting how you know, technology now is looking at you know, nature always to, to help solve these problems. We danced around fire, as you were saying. We, I think the precursor to a spoken language was a, a musical kind of language, right? More musical yeah. utterances than yeah. actual words and phrases, right? I, I think in a previous conversation, I was saying, for some reason, music that has like a C major seventh chord. So there's something about seventh chords for me that really profoundly affects my emotional state. I don't know what it is. You know, James Taylor, if there's a C major seventh chord or a series, of, and I keep on telling my sons, listen, would you just write me a piece of music? music that's based all on major sevenths chords. You know, <laughs> I don't care if you run up and down the scale, but hit every major seventh and see what you'll feel. Are those kinds of frequencies and my feeling towards them based on, like you're saying, that those early childhood memories of, of the kinds of sounds that we might've been around? 100%. So another area of my interest is character profiling and, and looking at how we, um, you know, personality types are based on the formative years and what your sound influences are, the environment you're in and those cues that particularly feed into key um, peak moments in your life, uh, in, in your sort of emotional development particularly. So as I think about, um, uh, let's say your second decade is a great time to start piecing together this puzzle. What were you listening to in your second decade? And you know, through that second decade, it's, you know, going to the secondary school into education and, and then coming into going to university, learning to drive, you're uh, uh, leaving home, first relationship experiences, some really big stuff happens in that second decade of development. And typically, the key moments are soundtracked by either you know, an album, a song, or even just background sounds. And, and you can re-trigger those, you can cue them again. You know, sometimes you'll hear something and go, wow, that's taking me right back. Add a smell to that and you literally you're just there in the zone. So, you know, the power, uh, you know, sound is, is second only to, um, to, to, to smell, actually, as the most memorable sense. So if you think about, you know, the potency of, of sound on a par with a visual uh, cue as a sort of memory trigger, um, isn't it interesting how we're not really using it enough? I don't feel, you know, I think as, as a species, um, if we look at that key sort of second decade, um, certain things that, that, that are personal to you 
will always have the same impact. Um, yeah. If you repeat, play them again, they will trigger a profound, deep sort of emotional connection with a time, a place, an experience, something like that. And that's really the power of sound that I utilize in my daily work. I'm a child of the 60s and 70s, so I can tell you Michael Jackson off the wall, Hotel California, um, anything by America, Ventura Highway, you know, those James Taylor, those songs, and I, you are so right. I can sit and listen to those on a Saturday morning and I am literally back in high school. And I really kick butt on my Peloton bike when I play my, my <laughs> 70s soundtrack, which is kind of funny because my, my sons will go, do you have to play rock from the seventies again? <laughs> and, and I say, well, yeah, because you know, it, it really gets me cranked up and, and, and like Saturday nights are right for fighting Elton John, man. I'll tell you, I, I will really push, you know, during that song. And it really does give me this incredible sense of joy. I mean, I loved those years. And, and so you're right. It, it goes back to those things. What I found interesting about what you said was this idea of combining, combining senses and I think I've always known that to be true. You know, they'll say, like, if you're selling a house, you know, bake a pie or, you know, make cookies or um, in, as a retail design architect for years, you know, we were always talking about um, the, the signature sense of brands and how those, those, those olfactory memories trigger visual, experiential, you know, body memories of those experiences and how profoundly they bring you back to those things. Now it can work in the positive sense, right? I sure. love that travel and it was a great thing. And that smell of whatever that food was, you know, gives me these joyful memories of that trip, but it could also do the reverse, right? My, my experience was horrible. And therefore every time I have that smell, I'm going to be reminded yes. of that other experience. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's really incredible that, um, your, let's say sensory memory bank compounds pieces together. Okay. Those ingredients of frequencies. And, and here's something that, that um, uh, I, I love to kind of add into the conversation, which is the fact that actually the visual spectrum, the sound spectrum and the sense spectrum, they're all wavelengths. They're all vibrations. They're all frequencies, just different speeds. And so we're actually processing frequencies through our eyes, our ears, and our nose. So this is actually an ear. <laughs> and I love that. There's a, there's a wonderful um, little piece that uh, the BBC put out called um, uh, about the bionic nose. It's just lovely the way they've, they've added a, a beautiful kind of graphic overlay to show you how you actually smell. And it's basically decoding um, vibratory molecules. So you smell a sound. <laughs> so you, you hear a smell. <laughs> well, this brings up this idea of synesthesia. Yeah. Synesthesia. Uh, which is a mouthful to say, uh, is the combination or the, the ability for people to attribute different uh, sensory experiences to uh, sounds and or colors and or, uh, for example, a sound might be blue or mm -hmm. a, um, a day of the week might be yellow. Dr. Seuss, actually, there was a book called My Many Colored Days that we used to read to my older son, Nick, who is the drummer, who, oh, by the way, is also uh, has this uh, incredible ability of synesthesia. So when he plays music, he literally feels and sees color um, as they are related to notes. And so it must be fascinating to think about how music can trigger those sensory experiences. But also, how do you know 
that for me, the soundtrack of the 70s is is good feelings, right? Yeah. But if I'm going to adopt that as a brand and say, we're going to play all music, you know, rock from the 70s, that may work well for David, but there might be an entire other cohort of guests for whom that might just be totally traumatizing. Totally. How do you mediate that world, you know, or how do you, how do you stay in a place where you're not inducing memories that might likely be traumatic? Is, is there a way to avoid that or is it just part of the territory? That's very interesting. Um, and you're right. And, and in the work that I've, I've, um, I continue to do as a kind of curator, if you like, of playlists, you have to be mindful of, of not triggering the wrong memories. So lyrics can do that sometimes. Um, and you have to be really careful about what, what lyrical content you're going to use. And, and is that lyrical content going to be offensive and trigger something? And, you know, again, brands have their own um, reasoning behind why they want to make a, a, an audio, have an audio um, guide, if you like, for their playlists. So uh, I've worked with one brand recently and they were quite happy with, you know, um, profanity and hip hop and culture that, that basically, you know, their co-working space was for, um, you know, Gen X, Gen Z, millennials. It was acceptable. You know, it's a language that's acceptable. Previously, I would never have upstayed well clear of any profanity, anything where there's any sort of, um, you know, notion of being politically incorrect or um, starting to get into offensive territory at all. We just stay well clear of it. And we'd use um, what I call a, a safe soundscape of um, music that would probably trigger a happy memory. So therefore, we'd use music that, that you may well have heard on a holiday somewhere. So Latin rhythms, um, Caribbean rhythms, tropical rhythms, equatorial rhythms. There's something very interesting about it. if you use sounds that are um, indigenous to warmer places, typically you'll make an association with, oh, I, I went to one of these places. And so if the, um, let's say, the component element of some of the music has some of this, so I don't want to kind of um, belittle some of these compilations, but there was a... a, a a Cafe Del Mar compilation, I think, almost set the tone for this. And then there was Buddha Bar and um, Hotel Des Costas. So the compilations started being put together by curators that were piecing together very um, eclectic selections, lots of world music influences. And if you went on holiday around that time, you'd probably be exposed to this music that had you know, a, a Spanish or Latin American influence or an African or an Indian or an Asian and, and so now we've got to a place where if you hear music that in, integrates those kind of elements, you probably won't be that offended. It, it's quite safe, you know, instrumental music that's kind of low tempo. And then from there, you start to think, well, what does the brand really want? Do you want to get a bit more edgy? Do you want to you know, increase the energy, um, switch gear? Do we want to connect with a very particular demographic? In which case, let's go EDM. Let's go all the way and get, you know, uh, have people in the bar uh, jumping up and down all night long and, uh, you know, prolong the dwell time, keep them drinking all night. You know, it's, you know, what the tricks, mind games do you want to play with people? And this is the sort of the insidious nature and the power of music that you're sort of talking about. You can repel or you can magnetize people to a space using that particular um, type of music. I love the idea of magnetizing people to a space. And I guess it is very true. If the music's great, you know it. And if there's something jarring about it, you also know it. And if you're talking about soundscaping a brand experience, uh, 
you clearly know who your cohort of guests are generally, are the larger proportion of people who will be there. And I guess you've been able to demographically figure out, you know, what they might likely like. So I suppose choosing sounds are easy. What about the idea of the soundscape of a brand for a moment? You, you've worked with Yotel, the yes. hotel group. And if I understand correctly, the music that you created, you pulled from the soundscapes of New York to create the soundscapes of this, this hotel experience. Is that, is that true? Well, so if, if I start at the beginning, I was, um, I created some compilations called The Trip and um, Gerard, the CEO, loved The Trip compilation, incredibly eclectic, takes you from um, late 50s into 60s through 70s, 80s, 90s, literally the full gamut. Um, a, a full soundtrack to a journey, hence the name of the trip. And the idea was that, you know, as a guest, your journey through the space of a hotel should have an appropriate soundtrack. What does it sound like? And how can you appeal to any guest of any age and not offend them, but support how they feel upon arrival, um, going through that sort of the, the, the doors, the first welcome they get? What does that sound like? What does it sound like when you're going in the, you know, the elevators um, to the rooms, etc.? So I was looking at literally every single micro zone within the hotel space to supplement a guest experience with what I would consider to be surprising, delightful, appropriate, um, non-offensive, and also supportive of um, the geographic location. And so the fun thing was that the hotel's location uh, up on, on um, 42nd and 10th, you're, you're right by um, Times Square. So you've got all of the kind of the, the rich culture of musicals and theater. And so uh, for the lifts, I pulled in classic uh, theme songs, tunes, um, anthems, songs from musicals, plus um, my love of, of uh, kitschy kind of um, sci-fi. So it went a kind of bit uh, Austin Powers in a sense. And you've got this sort of lovely kind of collection of moments of your youth growing up so i'd inject um and, and the beauty of a theme song is that it's a tiny amount of time so you know these little jingles and ads and they're beautiful you know 1950s jingles are with these sort of beautifully arranged um multi-part choruses vocal harmonies absolutely wonderful to hear they sort of take you somewhere back to you know childhood memory uh, and so you know integrating into a space that typically uh, makes you feel really uncomfortable, you know, the quiet lift, don't say a word. Suddenly we've diffused all of that discomfort with um, the theme song, uh, one of the theme songs from Sesame Street, the pinball song. One, two, three, four, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. 10, 11, 12. And a freestyle jazz. So the fun part was, you know, could could we find one tune, the perfect lift song. And I thought that was it, you know, and I think to this day, it's very difficult to, to find another song that's fun, connects with quite a wide demographic because you know, uh, I talk to parents now and they're giving, you know, their kids exposing them to sort of the early Sesame Street stuff. So it's kind of, it's continuing. And the pinball song, I think, which is about numbers in a lift and you've only got them there for 10 to 20 seconds maximum, perfect lift song. But incredibly, of all the soundscapes that I worked on, um, that got the most traction on TripAdvisor. So if you kind of filter through into about hotel lifts, you know, everyone says, oh, and did you hear that song? Oh, the James Bond theme. Oh, my God, I love that. And it just takes people into immediately makes it more fun. 
And I think there's an element of that that, that you know, you, you can have the serious kind of cool, she-she, chic kind of vibe in the bar areas at certain times of day, but you need some places where it's more fun. Bathrooms and lifts are great spaces to soundscape with uh, more novel, um, fun music. Highly underutilized um, yeah. or, or exploited opportunities, because you're right, right. You're going, you, you have that image in your head, right? You're going up in the lift or the elevator, everyone's standing there. They're all sort of looking out the corner of their eyes, trying to, <laughs> trying to be interested in the ceiling and that little, you know, five by seven inch little video screen that's yeah. above the keypad. <laughs> watching the ads that are playing there and then you're right i mean it, this is a great skit actually for something like saturday night live where you could look at diff the effect of different music in elevators oh. as, as you're going on those those multi-story trips right completely and because yotel is is now um uh all over the world yeah. i've been to some of their spaces and it works everywhere because yeah. you know the uh, the music culture the the culture of uh, film and tv has spread so for example, if I was to go, that in a lift is brilliant. Everywhere yeah. in the world, smiles happen, and people come out of the lift going, you know, Pink Panther, Henry Mancini, thank you. I mean, another perfect lift song. <laughs> it is. It is perfect. I, I love that Sesame Street at one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and eleven. And it's funny. I pulled pulled that up the other day uh, on YouTube, and the graphics were fabulous. Oh, the the, the artwork. You know, this is early seventies. You know, yeah. it had that sort of really groovy vibe to it, and the 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 groove for that little piece of music is also really hip. You know, is is, uh, and so. Going back to this idea of synesthesia, you combine sound, you combine lighting effects or other sort of uh, physically tactile effects, and it heightens the overall memory experience. Why is it so important for us to get the idea that it's not just one sense, but it's the uh, fully aware of all of the senses that are combining together to create this experience, of which sound is one of the most important ones. It's not just that we see the world with our eyes and we, we process the information that way, but we're, it really is a full-bodied kind of experience, right? And music plays are really critical. But why is it so that we should continually be mindful as designers of places uh, where people are gonna have these experiences that we're going at all the senses, not just you know one or two? It's, it's so crucial from my perspective. Having been through um, a, a music career touring, I've been very lucky to you know, 52 countries, played to millions. I've stayed in some amazing places, but I've observed that, you know, if I close my eyes, if it wasn't for probably the, the olfactory scent branding, very difficult to sonically differentiate between hotel brands around the planet. And so that got me thinking about the idea of, you know, Hospitality needs to have this differentiator, which mm. is a, a holistic approach to the full brand experience. And why don't sound designers and sound curators and, and um, producers get invited to those conversations where you're talking to interior designers? Because it's so it's so important, you know, to supplement what initially is um, you know this this uh, visual world. We look, we eat with our eyes, if you like. So the first thing we see is that oh beautiful lighting, beautiful texture materials, you know, the, the values that we uh, perceive with our eyes. But to support that sonically and with the olfactory, I think is so vital. So a holistic approach to, um, you know, empathetic uh, service design for 
guest experience, I think is is really the uh, the next level. Excuse the pun, but no um, pun. For, for me, it, it it really is. You know, next level for me is the point where the meetings happen, where you get all of the sensory service providers around the table, and you discuss. You know, what are the real needs of the guests, and how the brand wants to convey you know, their values, uh, and what do you want to give the guests on their journey to make it memorable and fun and exciting and engaging. You know. It's so much more than just, you know, this is a beautiful looking space. Right. Great. Well, it, it also smelt really good and gosh, didn't it sound lovely? And I had some right. great times there. You cement that experience if you've nailed all of the, the, the congruence and the coherence between all of those senses um, at that initial point where you're getting into the, you know, the core values of what is the brand trying to deliver for the guests? And if you can get to the nuts of that, there is a more appropriate and healthy soundscape for that. That's basically my world right now. It's trying to, you know, fly the flag for sound within the context of all the other design elements. I think it's like composition. We talk about compositionally from art or composition from architecture, architecturally speaking. But when you begin to think about, let's say, the creation of the symphony, right? If, if, if the brand experience is a symphony, yeah. then you wouldn't expect the conductor of that symphony to say, okay, oboes, yeah, I know there's a piece written for you here, but don't bother playing. And oh, timpanis, let's just drop that part out too. And I think you know, this idea that the symphony requires the combination of all of those elements, right? It's the architecture, it's the lighting, it's the environmental, the acoustical quality, it's all those other sensory things, like you said, that touch on all those sensory opportunities. And so I do see it very much like the writing of a, an experiential symphony. That's a beautiful analogy. I love that, David. Um, and you should think about the fact that uh, when, or when, every, when the orchestra is tuned, it creates harmony. So actually, as an analogy, it's perfect because you know if there are missing uh, elements of the orchestra, missing frequencies uh, within the, the full 180 degree soundscape, you're missing some huge opportunities to engage emotionally. It's like um, George Lucas said, 70% um, of his movies are John Williams soundtracks. Now, if you remove that epic drama from something visual, you've lost you know, half of the, the storytelling. And I think when brands are trying to tell a story, they're trying to take people on that, that journey through the space, uh, wherever it is they need to go into the space, um, showing them the way through the space, there should be a supportive um, soundtrack to that. And that to me, I think is, is my excitement these days is knowing that there's a fun to be had. And particularly when you start to think about when the guests contribute to that art, mm -hmm. to that music making, through moving through a space, triggering sound that is mm -hmm. harmoniously designed to be part of the overall soundscape. So the sound architecture, and uh, in the last few years, I've been referred to as a sound architect, which if you were to sort of check it out, there aren't really sound architects yet, but I strongly believe that you know, there's a future career for um, engineers, producers, artists, musicians that are looking to to help soundscape spaces. And I think sound architecture is actually a really great name to, to, to describe and define that. Um, but as yet, you know, you, you can't actually go and study sound architecture. But I think eventually it will be something that you will, you will learn about you know, what it is in the same way that to study architecture. You know, it's a, a protracted process. There's a lot of, of, of very sort of the complexities of understanding space, material, 
structure form um, and and how people utilize that and uh, location geography a, a huge gamut of, of uh, a multidisciplinary uh, area which obviously you know too well um, to come at that from the the audio sensory perspective i think is just really interesting because you know you start to um, uh, investigate if you like where you spatialize sound within structures to help supplement this this journey this narrative that starts so if you sort of think about uh, back to the sort of symphony again that kind of collaboration to create if you think about Hans Zimmer and his you know protege artist and the team behind creating that majestic sort of soundtrack you know, mm-hmm. that's really where we need to get to is you know the team sitting down and thinking okay well these are all the nuances these are the details and this is the story arc. And this is the, you know, the mood board and here's the storyboard. And okay, so this is the guest journey. How do we score that? And I think scoring spaces is probably one of the most exciting aspects of my career so far and continues to be. So there's a number of things here. One, this idea that we're incredibly attuned to variations in tonal quality, color relationships, value, scale, proportion, when things don't seem to be quite aligned or in tune, we can hear the misplayed note Totally. in the entire symphony. If someone squeaks on their violin or someone hits, you know, the wrong note, we're able to pick up that anomaly in a very complex pattern almost immediately. I think that's true of a painting or of uh, any composition where the, the thing that's out of place, we seem to be able to go to. You have any thoughts about why it is that we're so able to pick up those those mistakes or those missed notes or things that are are not in tune with the rest of the symphony from a sound designer and as a sound architect you know what's your thought on why that might likely be that's really interesting um so i wonder if you know, part of it is, is that back to nature i think um if we look at structure and form in nature always you know fibonacci proportion which is everywhere it's a defined golden ratio that just is pleasing to look at. There's something about certain forms that deliver harmony visually. Equally, if the the sound uh, is inharmonious or cacophonous, it creates an unpleasant feeling. You know, you're repelled, not magnetized. So I, I think we're naturally drawn to symmetry, structure, form that uh, is satisfying and delivering. Almost like you know, you kind of dopamine. Um, fix from seeing something that's just so visually perfect, Mm. um, effortlessly perfect. And however we've come to that point, um, I think we know that because we, uh, if you look at sort of Etruvian man and and how we are created, I think we exhibit a lot of this divine proportion, if you like, this Mm. incredible sort of ratio of X to Y that when it's done right, when it's placed within space, there's something about that that makes us feel safe, something mm-hmm. about that that makes us feel connected and that it's, it's natural. This was sort of a rhetorical question because I do have a, a sense of why this might likely be. Let me throw this out at you and see how it feels in terms of this idea of safety. We're incredibly good at perceiving anomalies in very complex patterns, actually before we're able to actually decode the complexity of a pattern. We see the thing that's out of place more, mm. but we would have had to have been able to do that a few million years ago, walking through the Serengeti, because we would have had to know whether the direction of the flow of the grass was actually because of the wind or whether that movement was slightly different than a breeze and that there was something lurking in the grass. So we became, either I was going to 
be lunch or I was going to have lunch was one of the two. And I had to know, I had to know the difference in those patterns and be able to pick out those anomalies so that um, it was a bit of a survival technique. So we're really good at that. At a brain level, what I know is we are pattern perceivers. Um, And our our perceptual system is set up to understand and and decode patterns. And when you have the inconsistency in a repetitive pattern, your brain is set up to send out what's called an error-related negativity. Your brain has got its guess of what the likely pattern is going to be wrong. It effectively shuts down the system. It reanalyzes what that new pattern is. And it is tied into, you said, the dopamine system. And so learning dopamine pattern recognition and the anomalies in these patterns are all tied together so that when you begin to relearn the pattern, even if it's a delta of, let's say, one second in the sound of a noise, those are just small deltas, but we're able to do that. So your brain very quickly works in the reassessment, I think, of what these patterns are, and it's tied into dopamine when you begin to learn what the new pattern is, dopamine goes into the system and you have that sense of joy about what it is you've just learned. So I think the branding world would do well to understand how you can introduce novel opportunities. And this is the whole idea of novelty, right? Yes. Why novelty is so critical to our experiences. So you weren't always sure not to put people off guard, but to keep them triggering in that sense of experiencing novel opportunities rather than simply having that habituation of the experience over and over and over again. Totally. Because, that, that, you know, uh, fatigue, you know, we, we don't like that. Music fatigue. Nothing worse than sort of hearing a repetitive soundscape or soundtrack. Point in case, I was in a restaurant the other night and they had one CD on repeat. I mean, we're in a time now where surely a restaurant, and this is a pretty high-end restaurant, they can't even afford to get, you know, a six-hour playlist. I mean, come on. And at that point, I'd heard, you know, the same track four or five times. And I hate to say it, it was that smooth jazz reworks of 80s kind of rock pop. Oh, insipid. Oh, you know, it, it, it was turning my stomach. You know, I'm there, there for sort of this, this beautiful kind of fusion cuisine. And, oh, I was feeling really, really upset with that. And it's so important, you know, if you get the soundscape wrong, you can induce indigestion. You can literally get people out. It becomes fast food. I want, I want a slow food experience. I don't even notice that. I want something you know, in the background that's just making me feel safe and supported. Very interesting, everything you've been talking about, particularly you know, the, the anomalies and the deltas. And I think you're right. When a brand grasps the idea of novelty and let's say being aware of behavioral psychology and how the mind works, as in looking for, you know, give people a pattern and then unpredictability. And then basically the brand has this sort of a built-in anticipatory novelty so that you go back there and, oh, it was really fun last time. And there's going to be something new and fun this time as well. That's brilliant. You've won because people come back for that. Um, They don't know what it's going to be, but it's going to be great and it's going to be fun. We often use in the house the rites of spring as the anomaly in classical music (laughs) that shifted the world on its ear, right? I mean, apparently it caused rioting in the streets because it was totally atypical from any classical composition that had been done before. This idea of repetitive sound. So you're an associate, let's say, you're working in a store, you're working in a hotel, and you do hear that soundtrack over and over and over again. Or there are the repetitive sounds of machinery or Mm. old school would have been in the newsroom with the typewriters. I imagine those kinds of sounds that are repetitive and drone, they have some effect on our mind-body state. Totally, yeah. Um, So this is a great point for me to talk about Bernie Krause, the amazing Bernie Krause and soundscape ecology. 
So what I learned um, the last couple of years is there's this incredible um, terminology for the soundscape that we uh, live in and we're exposed to. If we break it down into its component parts, the soundscape consists of geophony, which is the elemental sounds of planet Earth, water, wind, air. My favorite sounds, if I'm perfectly honest, nature sounds, because that's at this level of, you know, <laughs> apart from maybe you know, a storm, which is quite threatening and dangerous, it's normally in this lovely kind of 35 decibels of background safety net of sound that makes us feel safe. We know that the world is kind of ticking along. And it's also stochastic, meaning that we might think that there are patterns. It's quite difficult to pinpoint them. There are themes that repeat, but actually stochastic sound is non-repetitive and there are patterns. So it helps you to switch off. And this is one of the things that I use in my work in creating soundscapes to make you feel relaxed so that you're not actually tuning mm. in to, uh, to, uh, to, to seek the pattern and you unlisten. So geophony is that lovely background layer. Then you have the layer above that, which is biophony, the sound of insects, birds, creatures, the fauna of this planet. And again, that plus geophony to me is almost, that's the perfect soundscape. You know, it, it's, it's life before humans started um, making too much noise. And then you've got these two other layers, which uh, are really quite fascinating. You've got intentional anthropophony and unintentional anthropophony. So intentional anthropophony is music that we've made as humans. We've contributed to the soundscape and we decode that as music. We've intended to make this layer of sound and frequencies. I love that, you know, intentional anthropophony. You know, we've decided we're going to make sounds and that those sounds um, are normally sounds that we use to communicate or to decode as uh, music. And then you've got unintentional anthropophony. And this is, I suppose, the, um, the unhealthy sound we're exposed to, the noise pollution. And if you look at the, sort of the decimal mm. levels within all of this, it just gets louder and louder and louder. So in absence of any anthropophony, you have geophony and biophony that's sort of somewhere in the sort of 40, 45 decibels maximum range. So when we talk about you know, the sound of silence, actually it's very difficult to find that. You know, in nature, you would never have absolute silence. And in fact, going into an anechoic chamber makes people feel quite um, upset because in absence of all sound, you hear your you know, blood rushing through your veins and your body, you hear the sound of you, and that's quite mm. unsettling. So I love this idea that there is this natural background soundscape that is supportive to, to um, health and well-being and feeling safe. When the birds stop singing, uh-oh, there's a threat, run away. Um, storm clouds, sure. et cetera. And then, you know, looking at anthropophony and, and can we intentionally utilize that combination within a soundscape to support this journey? So that for me is really the guidelines for, for you know, brands to sort of take on board is, yes, there are times of the day when having some kind of intentional musical sound part of the soundscape is really appropriate, but actually just giving guests nature sound is really, really uh, uh, not only satisfactory, but very smart. It makes you feel really good. Um, the idea of biophilic sound design and um, nature bathing, forest bathing, uh, shirinyoku, you know, this lovely kind of Japanese um, word, uh, phrase for going in the 80s, go into nature, expose yourself to the sounds of nature, and it calms you, it uh, resets your nervous system. I mean, this is what every public space 
um, should have in the background, in my opinion, to help us, you know, education uh, spaces, hospitality, hospitals, you know, where we've got noise pollution right now, we could uh, mask that with a healthier soundscape of geophony and biophony. I wanted to jump on that idea of the forest bathing. You may or may not know the Japanese Digital Museum, and they use immersive digital experiences, but the museum is full of these nature, uh, it's like a nature walk. It's totally digitally manufactured, but it is that idea of forest bathing in a mm. digisphere where it's fully digitally enabled or created, but very deeply sensory. What's interesting about that for me is that the brain approximates or makes the relationship in the analogy. And so it's like these analogous processes in the brain where I don't have to be actually in the forest. I can have a good approximation for the forest as long as I think I am combining them with this idea of biophony and geophony, mm. where I'm combining those two very profound uh, sensory tools along with the visual application of a totally manufactured digital experience creates something that's still very profound in terms of experience. And you'll watch people, you can see these videos on YouTube where they're walking through and there's things that they trigger. Um, oh, so as, as they move through and they touch um, certain objects that are, I guess, uh, abstracted flowers and things like that, it changes the sound and it changes, I think, the digital content as well. So there's an immediacy to the experience where I have a sense of empowerment about how this experience unfolds because I'm participating in it. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really, it's very, very powerful as an idea. That's so lovely. Um, actually, it reminds me of a soundscape I created for the Ministry in London, which is a co-working space. And we have an outdoor um, terrace area. And this backs onto a very busy uh, highway. And in order to sort of mask that, I created this um, geophonic, biophonic soundscape. But also, at particular points, um, I've almost utilized the sort of the notion of a circadian clock, if you like. So in the morning, um, there is a, a typical English countryside. So you'll have those elements in there. But it's fun to sort of hear, you know, um, a cockerel crowing in the distance and then, you know, a small village church, ding, ding these sort of typical sounds that you hear in particular environments, you're kind of oblivious to it. You don't realize actually, why, why do I feel so comfortable sitting out here? You know, there's a very noisy road over here. Yet in this space, which is outside, you supported it with a, a fake yet supportive um, soundscape. Then we have start to have fun. So in the afternoon we go Serengeti and we have that kind of lovely kind of wind through the grass and uh, sometimes you have kind of cicadas, those sort of noises. And every now and again, we sort of trigger the, the fight or flight. Did you just hear that? And then um, the classic uh, Johnny Wiesmuller, um, oh, I threw that in for fun. You know, these are the moments that, that I start to have fun with. It's like back to the lift again. Okay, we're using the soundscape, but let's also just surprise and delight people. These little moments where, did you just, did you just hear an elephant? <laughs> because, you know, you've kind of tuned out a bit because it is stochastic. Yet you can catch people's attention and then remind them that this brand is thinking about you and thinking about not only something that's supportive of your, your day within the space, but also it's a bit of fun as well. And nighttime, that's when it gets really serious. So Amazon jungle and um, what do we throw in there? The predator sound. <laughs> so this is so much fun you can have, you know, cultural references injected into soundscape. But it does speak to the idea that you're actively working towards 
capturing attention, right? Or getting people to attune in the moment. Because I think you're right. You can, and I think we all do, we, we go through our daily experience. We walk through buildings. We could walk through the hotel lobby. We don't necessarily really attend to anything. Although architects and designers like to think that everything that they put in a building, everyone should be paying attention to. But the reality is, is that many people walk through spaces or experience streetscapes, and it becomes literally background noise, mm. right? A visual background noise, auditory background noise. But what you're suggesting is that we can use sound to refocus attention, yes. to wake people up and to yeah. keep them attentive during the experience, which seems to me to be brilliant in that if people are mindlessly going through experience, their ability to retain what was so unique about that experience, I would imagine, is pretty low. But if you're actively working towards maintaining their level of awareness and their level of attentiveness to their environment, mm. you're likely also driving deeper and longer memories in terms of how they would have experienced that place. 100% you're going to love this. Have you come across sound lasers? So these are directional focused beams of sound that operate within a very narrow uh, spectrum, but literally it's like a, a, a tube, if you like, of sound frequency. If you walk into that at the level of your ears, you will hear the sounds. If you walk past it, and it's very, very narrow, and we were talking about you know, maybe 50 centimeters of that foot maximum. So the fun we have with that is ghosts in spaces. So on staircases, we, we uh, invisibly mount uh, sound lasers and we put kind of, <laughs> can you hear me? So you're walking, you don't even, you're oblivious to the fact there's anything in the space at all, yet suddenly you walk through and you, did you hear those voices? And, and obviously then people you, people are sent back up the stairwell to hear the voices. Yeah, no, I, I don't know. So, um, this is, ever since watching Poltergeist in the early days, <laughs> I have, have never... Or, or Amityville horror, you know, I, I do not want to hear any sounds. In fact, that is a very, that's just a scary concept, Tom. Don't do that. You know, you're going to have guys like me going, yeah, I am never going back there again. I want to go back to anthropophony for a second. Okay. Um, it is true that we've, we've created a lot of unintentional sound. Is, is this, is the battle against that, this whole idea of white noise, we're going to create other noise that's just going to, we're going to pump it into the space and it's going to somehow cancel it out. And, and does that actually happen? Can you use certain decibels or frequency levels that actually do cancel out other things? Okay. So um, you can phase cancel sounds. So if you capture the same sound in real time, this is basically how noise canceling headphones work. In real time, they listen, if you like, to the uh, surrounding sounds, and then they flip, they invert those uh, phase of those frequencies. And by doing that, you basically reduce the, the amplitude of the waveform and thereby cancel it out. So noise cancelling works on phase cancellation. So yes, right now we have technology to do that. Um, sound masking is very interesting. So there's lots of white noise machines you can get. Um, I've been to hotels where you walk through the door and the first thing you, that you find is a Brownian noise projector. So it's, it's basically beaming a kind of uh, best analogy would be the, the internal sound when you're on a, a, a flight, a plane. So that kind of rolled off top end. So it's kind of the warm sort of not too high end white noise but a, a warmer smoother if you like multi-band noise that's really good for masking a lot of um, unwanted noise 
Um, equally, I think we're about a year away, or maybe even, I know there's some interesting technology advances going on right now with hearables. So the hearing aid, as we know it, is about to basically become um, a new tool. So all the stigma attached to, you know, something you put in your ear to uh, augment your, your current hearing ability to decode, you know, uh, danger, threats, uh, warning signs, or even, you know, uh, communication, we're going to be using these, these devices uh, in a much more powerful way. So from uh, augmenting our ability to hear particular frequencies, dining down, tuning out certain frequencies, that idea that we don't want to hear the dog barking, fine, you sample that dog, ruff, 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 ruff. analyzes in real time, smart neural network decodes the fact that you don't want to hear that dog barking, done, gone. We're so close to that happening right now. That to me is very exciting. And what else can you do with this device then? Okay, so what do you want? A personalized soundscape, you know, wherever you are, can you have this optimized um, audio sensory experience? So that if you're going through typically you know, an urban environment that's very loud and actually um, spikes your cortisol because you you feel the, the, the stress from being in this noisy environment with lots of you know, vehicles going on, dial it all down. You know, when you need to be warned by something, you will be. Um, so I think smart hearables are going to be a, a game changer for how we you know, perceive and use sounds um, for daily life and what is going to be a more uh, supportive um, soundscape for our health, well-being, and also for brands to use this. You know, you walk into a space, suddenly, you know, spatialization, you know, all of the things that you can do with sound in the space or delivered personally to your hearable, I think will be um, a, a very interesting place to be for you know, the, the, um, the shift, if you like, in uh, our perception of sound frequency and getting rid of these awful, you know, the, the dangerous frequencies that are actually mm. causing so much harm. I mean, uh, the World Health Organization uh, published a study on noise pollution. It's pretty disturbing. I mean, uh, we won't go into that now, but if you want to find out how bad it is, go and check out the document. You know, we are exposed to unhealthy levels of sound. Uh, anything over about 95 decibels for about an hour is unhealthy in the sense that it elevates your heart rate. You've got more cortisol in your system. Um, hospitals that are typically supposed to be places of healing are you know, very loud and unhealthy just from that perspective. And, and that to me, I think is very worrying, you know, places where you need engagement, um, schools, you know, education centers, uh, offices, you know, environments where we're exposed to the wrong unhealthy sounds that are scrambling our brains. Uh, we can only handle so much audio uh, material in one, uh, in one moment. So to have environments that are actually supportive of this. Uh, and, and I think we're, we're getting to the point now where I think we could regulate it as well. You know, I think the, uh, you know, the well-being, uh, the well-building uh, regulations, there should be you know, an element of making, ensuring that if you're working in a space or you are a customer or a, a paying guest within a space, you should not be exposed to unhealthy levels of, 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 of sound for a prolonged amount of time. You should be exposed to you know, a healthy sound. Like, why not come out of that experience feeling healthier? There you go. There's the, the money shot right there. <laughs> no, I agree with you 100%. You know, when I listen to you talk about sound, uh, I you can't help but be struck by your 
relationship to this the discussion of sound and from the musicality point of view and from the engineering point of view, but also the neuroscientific point of view. And I, I'm most of what you say is always, it seems to be tagged back to, well, this is actually what sound does to your neurobiology. Let's take a, a little detour here for a second into sound and the brain, sound and the vagus nerve, sound and what you know about how sound is directly influencing that connection between the mind, the body, and how it's affecting what we're doing. Because it seems like everything that you go back to, talking about cortisol production or mm. talking about dopamine production and, and yeah. those things, is this becoming an area of study for you and for are people becoming more aware? of this interrelationship between sound and neuroscience? Yeah, well, it's so funny you should say that. So I, I've just finished writing a chapter for um, uh, on sleep for touring artists. And the, the professors at Goldsmith said, why don't you just come and do a PhD on this? And it's the Music Mind Brain um, uh, Research Lab at Goldsmiths in London. And obviously, uh, I've been thinking about this for a while. I think I need to, to go back into academia and, and to continue this research. With me, it's incredibly interesting it's you know what, what drives me really is the research and and how sound frequencies music affect us and can we use that research to inform better uh, production decisions as a sound designer can I make better decisions about the content I'm creating to help support human well-being bottom line I, I would like to think that I can create soundscapes that, that make you happier and healthier and live, live longer you know we, we all search for higher productivity and optimized lifestyle. We're looking for all those hacks, uh, as many as possible. And I think music, mind, brain, that's you know, where art and science meet for me is just uh, it's a beautiful place because you know, intuitively coming from classical and jazz and dance, um, exploring how um, these different pieces of music um, ignite you know, 100,000 people, they're all doing this. Wow to you know, an intimate room where you're playing minimal drone ambient music and people start crying. You know, the, the power of sound and music to influence your um, autonomic nervous system and to drive emotions, you know, the behavioral outcome driven by this trigger, which normally is a you know, psycho-emotional cue. There's something about, as we talked about earlier on, you know, if, I'm, if I'm using some of this um, wisdom uh, the art, if you like, of tuning into knowing who your audience is, what might be triggering them? Well, I know if I play this particular track here, I can get everyone dancing in one minute. I can get everyone people relaxing. This particular piece of music can literally slow your breath rate down, um, bring your heart rate down, cortisol starts being reduced in its production, so adrenal systems are starting to be recalibrated. Um, your blood pressure comes down, you're effectively rewiring your, um, your whole nervous system, coming to a state of rest, digest and recover. Parasympathetic mode is activated. That is incredibly powerful. You know, we're in a time where we're so stressed and, and, and anxious, being able to literally play a piece of music and it brings you back within five to, to eight minutes into a place of, of parasympathetic is what we all need. Um, one of the, the projects we work on is called Breathonics, which is breathing to sound. Um, the company Silent Mode approached me. They liked the idea of, of the, the soundscapes I was creating to help people nap and sleep. And we've developed it since then to, to integrate the, the power of breathwork, which is becoming a, a, a meditation 2.0. Kind of the, new, the new yoga is using the power of breath, 
learning that actually we've lost the art. As kids, we, we barely breathe. And uh, as soon as we sat down on a chair, we started to retain all the sort of air within our system and we forgot how to breathe properly. So we're no longer diaphragmatic breathers, we're chest breathers, which is wrong for a whole number of reasons. So if utilizing all of the current, um, let's say mindfulness practices, uh, you use the, the Muse device for mm -hmm. um, bioactively uh, resetting your system or recalibrating, calming yourself down, um, there are some, some great techniques very quickly to get back to that sort of place of rest and digest. And, and I think, you know, as um, someone that's interested in neuroscience, if we can look at you know, effective tools for this, you know, we, we can address things like you know, sleep challenges, helping people stay in the, the deep delta wave, you know, really sort of restorative sleep, keep people, allow people to, to have REM sleep. Um, looking at sleep architecture, um, you know, for me, within the guest experience, I mean, how powerful is that? wake up having had the best night's sleep ever because you've been supported with this, you know, holistic multi-sensory approach to soundscaping. So yes, neuroscience for me. And I think going back into to education is where I'm going to go because uh, there's more to learn, way more to learn. Sort of brings us back to the beginning of the conversation uh, about talking about the anxiety within the context of this pandemic, right? The uncertainty of the yes. future, people not knowing what's happening, the loss of jobs, the economy, the politics, all these kinds of things. The fact that, you know, friends are getting sick, friends are dying, mm -hmm. that um, I, I can tell you my sleep my wife can tell me I could sleep in a train wreck or, or I'll fall asleep very quickly. Yeah, but truthfully, you know, it hasn't quite been as easy as that of late. Uh, and I know that you have taken these tools with uh, the fascination around neuroscience, sound design, and now you have an app. Uh, you're on the Calm app. My son uses Calm and he goes, oh, yeah, Tom Middleton. I know him. He's the guy who, you know. <laughs> um, and so tell me about Calm and uh, what you did for, for them. So um, I was, uh, basically, I was, I was connected up with, with um, uh, Michael Acton-Smith, uh, a mutual friend. And we had this great conversation uh, along with Alex Chu about the fact that they were, Alex was aware of my music back in the 90s, Global Communication, an album of, of let's say intuitive ambient music, uh, a response to, at that time, there was a lot of very kind of aggressive, um, fast, loud techno music being created. Mm -hmm. And we thought we'd create this sort of antidote, if you like, to this loud, fast, hectic, frenetic music. And we didn't even have an agenda. It wasn't created for a dance floor, it was just, Let's just think about, you know, creating music from an emotional place, make people feel again, reconnect them with their senses. So the Global Communication album, if you like, has kind of formed a template for um, the, the music I make now, weirdly, but now I'm starting to analyze it and understand those decisions that we made using um, geophony barphony back in the early days. It just felt intuitive. Oh, these are nice sounds of, you know, a, a ticking clock and bird song and the sound of waves. Um, and obviously uh, up to the present day calm delivers this in incredibly powerful um, engaging experience to help support people's um, mental and emotional well-being using sleep stories uh, and music to listen to, to to help kind of modulate mind mood and behavior and um, one of the areas of their app is the sleep music um, so we talked about you know, what, what could i contribute to their, their platform and for me the, the the low the first thing that i thought would be really great to explore is um, a piece of music that's designed to help you within that hour before sleep to wind down not music whilst you're sleeping but the wind down 
Okay, so if we're talking about an app that's really useful, something that gets you to switch off and, and turn off and reset, um, take your mind away from distraction and um, the sort of uh, hyper-engagement was so um, aroused and stimulated to all hours. We're still scrolling and liking and trying to look for self-validation, going through emails. You know, the last thing we seem to be doing is you know, engaging with the screen at a rate of knots, which is crazy. Okay, so let's look at this, this golden opportunity. Let's reclaim an extra hour before bedtime and get people to be a bit more mindful. So I'm going to take you on a journey there. And this journey is to a, um, a, a tropical uh, shore at sunset going through into you know, the stars coming up and the, a moonrise. And I love the idea of creating this beautiful kind of warm, safe, happy space, uh, but a new, a so positive association with um, good quality sleep. And so now, um, you know, get some great feedback from people saying, you know, I, I start listening to the first sort of two, three minutes and it sends me off. So you've, you've basically uh, helped support people in that journey to sleep. So initially what I do is I engage people. There is melody and harmony and I use familiarity. So using classical, slow, soft piano motifs, but they evolve in a way that becomes quite organic and stochastic. So initially you might think there's a pattern, but I've tricked you. <laughs> I get you to unlisten. And I quite like this idea of I'm going to create a piece of unlistening music. So it unwinds and unravels, and I use some production techniques to basically soften and filter and make it quite dreamlike. So it almost dissolves into the sea, and you get this sort of lovely, lush, organic, safe soundscape supported by ocean waves, supported by that one of my favorite sounds is um, cicadas and the crickets just going. Shh, 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 you would love my backyard. Oh. I've got oh. frogs. I've got a symphony of frogs oh, and crickets wonderful. and cicadas. Oh, yeah, you would love this. Beautiful. It, I mean, that to me, that is one of the best soundscapes ever. It, it never gets old for me. I just love that. I can sleep with that. That and rain. Um, you know, I'll take I'll sleep. take a mic out to the backyard tonight and oh, I'll record and I'll send I'll, you a clip, bro. Thank <laughs> you, you. Used it to go to sleep by one of the books that I've read that is probably one of the most profound. Uh, on the idea of sleep that I have read is Matthew Walker's book on um, why we sleep and you get through the first chapter or first paragraph rather. And you really begin to get in the sense that, you know, if you're not getting your eight hours, you're just doing damage to yourself. You're decreasing the longevity of your life. You're increasing the possibility for all kinds of different diseases and that people are running out and taking sleep medications, you know, to, to put them to sleep. But really what they're doing is they're just medicating themselves when they could likely be using other tools like you know the calm is one of of multiple apps but using the simple world of sound to get them to trigger sleep in in an, a much more uh, effective way i imagine that sleep and sound are tied together in the same way that it has this a way to um, get you in that soporific state where you're just dozy and it is one it's a sleep aid without the medication Indeed. So I think what's, what's, uh, what I've come to, to really enjoy, and there's also, uh, <laughs> uh, hilariously, a major challenge involved in this. So as a producer of music, I've created all kinds of genres, but sleep music, if you want to call it that, is the most difficult to create effectively. Because if you think about it, when you create a piece of music, you, you, you're pretty much kind of creating in cycles and loops and listening to a piece over and over again. 
you try staying awake, recording and writing sleep music. It's the most difficult <laughs> thing I've ever done ever. There's, 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 there's nothing else I've ever had so much challenge with. I mean, creating music to make you dance and you know, to give you energy, easy. You know, it's, you're in that mode. But when you're actually making music to designed intentionally to make you feel sleepy, wow, that's hard work. So yeah, um, what's lovely is that you know, in, in this, um, this, this new genre, uh, is is really starting to take off. When you look at some of the DSP uh, platforms, some of their, um, their the most engagement they get, the, the biggest audiences are with sleep playlists, sleep music, music for wellness, music for mm -hmm. mindfulness, music for focus, mm -hmm. and the fact that using music as a tool to help support these different you know life lifestyle modes, if you like, is absolutely fascinating to me. And it's gotten to this this point that. Um, uh, you've got people that have been creating music for relaxation. You, you might say that the new age world, a new age spiritual music for a long time has been used for mindfulness and meditation. But now there's this whole new area of, of music that's starting to, uh, to be used specifically for getting people to sleep. So that's really my area of interest. And, and the fact that we know how important sleep is, is, is why I'm so focused on it. So uh, having do, done the training as a sleep science coach, to understand a little bit about sleep architecture, read Matthew Walker's book, uh, I speak to uh, academics and experts at sleep labs to try and find as much information as possible, um, go through all of the research that I can get my hands on to try and find out, you know, if we can understand the sum of the universals about you know, circadian science and the optimal time to go to sleep, We've got wearable devices now that are helping to inform us so we can learn that's actually a pretty good time to go to sleep if you choose to. So what can we do to help in a time when we're all switched on to help switch you off and then reclaim that, that moment, half an hour to an hour before you go to sleep to help bring you back down into a natural space where your body is uh, receptive to, as Matthew Walker calls it, the best sleep opportunity. Right. Um, and, and actually you only need about 20 minutes um, that's the, the normal time it takes to actually drop off to sleep. And a bit of fun you can have if you want to find out how long it takes is you lie on, with your arm on the edge of the bed with a spoon um, and basically you have your, your hand on the edge of the bed holding onto the spoon and you set a, a kind of a clock timer and obviously as soon as you nod off, you'll release the spoon and you can see how long it took you to get to sleep. But that, then you know, okay, so I'm about a 15 to 20 minute sort of person. Right. I can get sleep in that sort of amount of time. But we're all different. Um, there's this wonderful new bit of research Michael Breus uh, calls uh, sleep chronotypes. Um, four types. You're, 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 typically, we think of like a morning or a night kind of person, but there is some interesting research that he's done around what he calls wolves, bears, lions, and dolphins. So different sleep chronotypes. Are you naturally uh, designed um, through your, let's say, lineage to be uh, an early riser or a late riser? And so obviously, you know, we're penalized, uh, we're lambasted as a culture for being the, you know, he's the guy that's always late for work. Well, this is probably a sleep chronotype. You know, he, he would be better off allowing to work in extra two hours later. You know, there's all these factors that, that you bring into play. The bottom line is this, if you were to look at um, a day, 24 hours, you've got um, three nice little chunks of, of eight hours. And um, recently, I was, I was reading about this this idea of you know, divide it into three. Okay, so um, the sleep part is really interesting. It's actually where you're fasting. 
And there's a lot of talk now about intermittent fasting. So that's your natural rest, digest, recovery, where you break down bad cells and build new cells. So your body goes through this whole process of uh, you know, a brain detox uh, um, and uh, a body rebuild, uh, your immune system's rebuilt. It's the natural way to basically regenerate, rebuild, and, and uh, reset every, every system in your body. It's perfect if you get it right. So we need to give ourselves a good sleep opportunity and we need to know the tools for doing that. We need to understand, you know, what are the, the things that we can maybe remove from our environments to optimize uh, an opportunity that's you know, delivering better sleep. Uh, and, and again, this kind of comes back to you know, the idea of guest experience. What can you remove from the current space to optimize sleep? And what can you put in there to help um, optimize sleep? And then you've got this, this lovely kind of uh, second phase of, of eight hours, which is actually elimination of toxins. So right. you, you rebuild, rest, recover, you wake up, eliminate, move. Um, and then you've got another kind of uh, optimal sort of eight hours of, 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 of intake again. So you feed yourself with the, the things that you need. It's very interesting if you, if you look at that, which way you're going around, you're going to do that. You had, the alar- you had an alarm going off in the background. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. So... So come back to the, um, the, the point where you were talking about, uh, the, the, the brainwashing, um, there actually is a phase of sleep that allows us to, uh, the brain to cleanse itself from these amyloid plaques that are yes, um, largely responsible for things like Alzheimer's. Yes, absolutely. And, and obviously if you can't get your, your body to, um, to have that deep Delta restorative sleep mode that is the brain detox, if you like. Only only bad things are gonna happen down the line. Right. So that book is pretty scary. Um, as you the, the Matthew Walker book. Yeah, I mean, you read yeah. it at the end and you go, oh, I really need to fix my sleep. Correct. But equally, equally, it's only one page of take homes at the end. And I found that, you know, uh, you know, where's the reward here? We've just been told some really bad stuff. Yeah. Um, so actually, um, part of you know what I'm trying to do is to to, to find the, the simple tips and take homes. What are practical um, solutions to optimizing sleep? So how to sleep better? Created an album with some sleep hygiene tips. And so my concern, if you like, in the world that I'm in, uh, in the music industry, I sit on the the health board of uh, the AFM group, uh, and so part of that is sort of helping to support the music industry with better sleep. And you can imagine, you know. Music shift workers, you're basically disrupted sleep and bad things are going to happen, guaranteed. We've got lots of research to support that. So I think being mindful and responsible um, about sleep, particularly if, if you're in hospitality, I think is, is really key. And we talk about you know, guest experience and um, have you really fixed guest sleep? And I'd say to this point, and that's the research that I've done, very few have actually nailed it. I think short of going to a six senses or an incredible space with beautiful natural soundscape and a high level of quality sleep tech, mattress, linens, etc., and um, the dis- removing the distractions and knowing that you're somewhere that, that's going to be relaxing anyway, right. you've, you've almost won. But in an urban environment, can you deliver a high quality sleep? That's my question. On that. Well, this was one of the big questions that we faced uh, when I was working at Marriott trying to deal with Weston um, and and our whole premise on the redevelopment of the Weston Gen 5 guest room was 
you know, we talk a lot about biophilic design, about creating spaces that get people in uh, a mind-body wellness frame of mind that actually enhance the likelihood that you will feel better, except that we also work seemingly really hard at contradicting those other good efforts because then we'll do things like we'll put lighting in a guest room that completely is out of sync with circadian rhythms and that we're providing uh, lighting conditions that are telling your brain stay awake. So we say, you know, it, it had to be more than the heavenly bed, right? right? Which, which is a fabulous bed. It changed the hospitality industry. Mm -hmm. But then it seems like there are things that architects and designers of hospitality experiences just don't attend to, like lighting, like sound, uh, and, and that those things are so critical to enhancing the likelihood that you'll get people into that place, that they will they will wake up refreshed uh, because right. there's so much of an assault on them all day long that that little crucible of the hotel room has to be able to do the very thing you're talking about, which is getting people's mind body, you know, uh, to be more aligned, to to get them feeling calmer about that. But we don't often do it. We, and in fact, we often work um, to contradict the other good efforts right. into experiences, <laughs> uh, which always seemed to be a strange, you know, dichotomy for me. And so we worked very hard uh, in when in doing the Western Room about getting the lighting conditions right, putting in lighting systems mm -hmm. that would map um, the lighting experience from the morning to the evening and provide different uh, color ranges uh, and intensities to allow those things to tell your brain, okay, really, it is time to sleep now. But when you get to this idea of sleep and and the, I'm going to say the soundtrack of a sleep experience. Right. Okay. I get that we can figure out the first 20 minutes to get people to sleep, but when people are asleep, does that soundtrack change and become aligned with, with those brain level activities of the different wave types that are increasing or decreasing over that eight hour period or, and, and does the body recognize, even though in as close as a state as you can be to being in a coma, which is yeah. <laughs> at yeah. least parts of the sleep cycle. Um, does the body recognize those sounds and does the soundscape change over that eight hour period? So various options here. And this is again about the personalization of experience. So my preference is to support that eight hours with stochastic um, biophonic and geophonic sound. In other words, it's the, the natural white noise, if you want to call it that, rather than this um, generated, which to me is, I would say there's not enough evidence to say that that's actually doing any good. Now, mm -hmm. I'd be worried about, you know, giving, uh, exposing babies to these white noise machines. That worries me greatly. Whereas, you know, a soundtrack of nature sound, yeah. I'm, I'm okay with that. That, that, that to me seems natural and uh, the likelihood of doing any damage is negligible. So I think to mask you know, intrusive sounds is uh, the name of the game. So you can't switch your ears off. What can you do instead? So I have, yes, I've, I've got these um, wonderful devices. They're custom fit earplugs. And, and I think in all my kind of sleep hygiene toolkits, the best investment I've ever made is these attenuators that just turn the annoying sounds down to this beautiful kind of minus 36 decibels. And if you think about, you know, noise pollution levels that are spiking sort of 80, 90 decibels, if you can just bring all of that back down, 
you're not the likelihood of, of disrupting your your normal natural sleep is going to be reduced significantly if you're turning it all down. So you still get you know the, the, the soundscape in the background. Um, so I like to to actually supplement my sleep with a soundscape and attenuators. So I have this background noise that I like, which you know, is ocean, rain, biophony, uh, geophony. And then equally, I've turned down all of the annoying kind of urban noises that I don't like. Um, so you're kind of battling uh, in unintentional anthropophony, the cacophony of life outside, right. which is going to disrupt you. If you're not blocking or masking, you're going to get disrupted. Uh, every time you hear a threatening sound, your sense of you know uh, safety is being triggered. Your spatial awareness goes, oh, is that a danger? Wakey-wakey, right. fight or flight have some cortisol, game over. You've disrupted your sleep. You've, you've just you've destroyed all of the good work that's going on. So in the back of your paleo sleep, uh, cool, dark cave, which I like to sort of talk about, if you can keep it cool, dark and a very low level of sound, so you're not exposed to the, um, the, the sounds that are going to disrupt your sleep, but you obviously want to hear the baby crying or the fire. So as long as you've kind of eliminated the unwanted noise and replaced with a sort of supportive, healthy, uh, soundscape. I think you're winning. I'm curious about the whole idea of, of growing up, let's say, living in inner city. Uh, I lived in, and worked uh, in, in Manhattan for a few years, and or I lived adjacent to Manhattan, but worked there for a few years. And, and there was always the siren going by. There was always that sort of continual din of noise that was, and it has to be agitating. It has to have a sort of a long-term negative effect on people's well-being. 100%. I mean, back to the, the WHO article, um, you know, the longer you're exposed to unhealthy, um, not only noise levels, but the frequencies of, you know, sirens and things like that, um, it's going to trigger you. It's yeah. going to, you know, keep you, maintain you in a state of, of uh, um, uh, threat awareness, if you like. Is there a threat? Do I need to run and hide or fight? You know, and that is the key, I think, is if the environment you're in can you right now create an optimal um, sound light combination that uh, helps you with this problem that you've got outside the windows, which is you know unintentional anthropophony? Um, and I think that's that's the key to it. You know, got, in guest experience, you know, noise isolation is great, but also support that with other sounds inside. So remove the bad stuff, uh, replace with good good healthy sound, and mm -hmm. make sure that. You can try and keep people in that sort of, uh, with, with sleep, basically, if there are no identical sleep um, architectural patterns, but typically we have a 90-minute cycle that repeats um, all the way through the night. So if you go to sleep at the right point, typically, you know, five, four, five, six cycles later, you will awake naturally at the lightest point in REM sleep. So you go from... Um, uh, stage one, stage two, stage three, stage two, stage one, REM sleep, and repeat that. So that's the cycle, if you like, of N1, N2, N3, N2, N1, REM, repeat. So it's N REM and then REM, that cycle repeats. And the amount of time you spend in sort of stage three, which includes the delta slow wave sleep, reduces over the night. So from your perspective, you get a chunk of the first part of your, your night's sleep is crucial for getting the delta wave sleep in. If you don't get that, if you're disrupted in the first sort of three or four cycles, 
that's where you know you've got some major problems. So I think being aware of the fact that sleek architecture kind of does this and then kind of goes higher and higher with the cycles, if that is your circadian cycle and you're looking at um, about seven and a half to nine hours, five or six cycles, um, what can you do to help support that? Well, I think you know sonically you can look at that and think, well, if delta wave sleep is one to three cycles a second in terms of hertz, could we be using binaural sound beats that are basically uh, creating that um, tone um, and through uh, entrainment maintaining you in delta wave? And so I think we've got some interesting tech right now that's starting to do that. My problem is I don't really want to put something on my head when I go to sleep. I don't really mm. want to be listening to something. You know, if we can deliver binaural beats through um, haptics, maybe that's a, a solution something where you're entrained with a vibration perhaps so go back to you know the tech that looks at sort of vagal tone modulation can we keep you in delta wave slow wave for the optimal time even if you're getting distracted and disrupted by external noise that's where i suppose we're at with the sort of tech at the moment and the sort of challenges we're looking to sort of solve seems like we're an uh, it would be an opportunity for a mattress manufacturer to take on pumping sound through a mattress right, right. I, I imagine right. No, really. Or a pillow would be kind of lumpy. You wouldn't want to have mm. a speaker inside your pillow. But I imagine you could get the binaural beat idea um, permeating through a mattress of some kind or from below the bed or or things like that that would give you some sense of, of uh, that sound being uh, there throughout the evening. I'm fascinated with this idea that uh, buildings can react to the way people use them, you know. Um, we talked about the idea of sound and how sound uh, can change and can soundscaping can uh, can affect the more I interact with it. Maybe it changes and and is uh, is in sync with the things that I want to do. And in our previous interview with one of our guests, Bruce Bartelt from Little, he said, you know, um, architecture is is frozen music. <laughs> and he says some oh, someone said that didn't someone say that and i thought architecture is frozen music i gotta bring that up with tom yeah, architecture that. is frozen music and it does go to this idea of the symphony of design right all the component pieces that come into that symphonic symphonic experience of place that i have been fascinated with this idea that what if you could play a building oh, what yes. what if what if the the arcade of an ancient, you know, an ancient Greek uh, agora had a sense of rhythm and and um, that we could tie sound into that. And I love this idea of architecture as frozen music. That's beautiful. Um, <laughs> interestingly, uh, Tim Gledstone from Squire Partners, um, he said he finds that, or he, he came up with this idea of soundscape is architecture without gravity. So similarly, it's this idea that, you know, you have a structure and a form that is supportive of the, uh, the users, if you like, of that experience. Yet in this case, it defies gravity. I love that. And frozen music equally is a moment in time you know, to capture all those frequencies and then shh, there it is, beautiful harmony um, captured you know, in a moment. In and a the moment. fact that um, if, if we could create new moments and the building uh, adapted to the flow uh, of 
uh, it's called wu-wei, that's the, the, the Chinese term for flow, there's a beautiful, um, I'll come back to that, I'll try and remember the name for it, there's a lovely, there's, there's a project that, that uh, I was involved in a little while back, talking about this, this idea of flow. Um, humans use buildings at different times of day and they move you know, through it and the fact that you know certain times of day will be kind of greater clusters or congregations and then it'll sort of disperse and come back again and the circadian clock of the, the, the building if you like and people through that and can you plug into both uh, appropriate times of day for particular um, uh, human generated soundscape and that adding you know the uh, that aspect of dynamism to the architecture mm -hmm. through sound mm -hmm. appropriately and on brand and, and sort of looking you know, are we talking about you know um, or, or organic or brutalist minimal you know what what is the the, the, the visual statement and is there um, a, a sonic equivalent of that I mean how much fun could you have? We toyed around with the idea of playing the staircase in, in one of the hotels where you trigger, and much like Tom Hanks in Big, which you know, I just think, yeah, why not? That'd be amazing. Just you just whoa, the staircase. Have you come to the musical staircase? You know, it's where using the space to create the soundscape um, and for it to become more than just a static building. Mm -hmm. And I love the idea that you know, the flow of, of, of humans through the building and the more we kind of allow uh, um, you know, the guests to share their you know, biometrics as they're using it, you know, heart rate and pulse, it can get really interesting where you know, the excitement builds, the more engagement that happens, the more exciting the soundscape is, et cetera. And, and if people feel like, no, we need to kind of calm and chill out if there's an area where it's sort of more about working, but the combined... Um, pulse rate, if you like, uh, respiration rate, uh, the mood and the emotions is designed and delivered by the, those that are using the space. And I think that that's really where we're getting to. Well, I think this is the, for me, this is the future experience uh, fantasy, right? That <laughs> there is this shared symbiotic relationship of this energy flow, of these harmonies and and frequencies on which all things are based, that somehow users of places and the places themselves align in harmony in those rhythms of energy and, and frequency, and that these two things change each other. It's a little bit like the world of ontological design, which is a whole other subject, but um, that I think that creates a really extraordinary vision for the emergence of things like parametric design, where oh, you know yeah. the the energy and flow of these relationships between the users and the built environment are tied together, and parametric design and architecture, these things have to stop, and they are these pieces of frozen music in time. But that that organic nature of the way energy moves between things, I think, as reflected in architecture could be really intriguing. Um, not just the formalism of traditional architecture, you know, built that the ages have been built on uh, that have the ABABAB rhythms or, you know, very simple rhythms, but that um, our lives aren't ABABAB as discovered, you know, in this pandemic, they mm -hmm. are something that is ever changing and fluidly moving between life states, day parts, um, experiences, relationships, those kinds of things. That's my vision. 
you know, for for the the future of architecture and emergent experience, where's the future of sound going for you, Tom? Well, I, I think similarly, it's um, it's this feeling that, that actually, why can't we all participate in in this soundscape? If we're aligned in what we need it to do, so the function informs the form. Um, we know that we want something that makes us healthier, happier, more productive. So if we know that that's you know, the end result, and, and, and if we're looking at a behavioral outcome, an emotional outcome, we can kind of reverse engineer that so that we anticipate the needs of whoever's going to be exposed to that soundscape. And so the sound architecture, if you like, is a, a reflection of, of where we are, when we are, and who and what we are. And I think that's really exciting is this sort of idea that um, you or I could just go to a space and that we would contribute to the, you know, the collective energy and that's influencing something that we know is designed to deliver well-being. Um, and that, I think, is, is um, that's a great place to be in my book. Quickly going back, which you can kind of add back in. So I love this. So Wu Wei. Uh, Chinese concept literally meaning inexertion in action, effortless action. Sinologist Jean-Francois Billeter describes it as a state of perfect knowledge of the reality of the situation, perfect efficaciousness, and the realization of a perfect economy of energy. I love that. The economy of energy. So, you know, that's what we need. We need sort of this, this, this flow state where we don't have to exert ourselves. Why should we? We don't have to try. It should be effortless. We should just be in there and dynamically the space should be smart enough to anticipate our needs it knows what time of day it is it knows where we've come from it knows that actually what's right and appropriate at that time of day for us based on the data that we choose to share in advance can really help with you know um, experience design moving forward uh, and and it's empathetic isn't it that's the bottom line it's just you know, it needs to be more about um, delivering an outcome that's um, aligned with what we need as a species. And if right now we're really anxious and we are feeling unsafe, we need spaces that are making us feel safer and more certain. I love the idea that uh, empathic architecture or empathic experiences are built uh, and rely on this interrelationship between architecture, interior design, materials, finishes, the whole biophilic world, and sound. And I think that this conversation has uh, probably only touched on as a starting point to really dig deep into the idea that sound is deeply influential in our experience and can really be a increasingly find a place in the experience design world where it is uh, brought to the forefront of how we drive profound, relevant, meaningful, and deeply sensory experiences that um, that connect brands to experience or brands and people to experience places in a much deeper way. So, Tom Middleton, thank you so much for the time that you've spent uh, today. This has been really illuminating. Um, I love the idea that sound has a very influential role in everything that we do, from our well-being to our psychological states to the nature of really having profound experiences in places uh, you can find your music on the calm app yeah i was gonna say um yes yeah, so uh, i've created content for calm and i've got some new content coming up that is actually tackling anxiety and overwhelm specifically in this sort of state of uncertainty um i've also got an album called sleep better which is again specifically designed for the hour before bedtime that is accompanied by sleep hygiene tips so 
trying to share you know, some tools to help self-care toolkit for sleep. Um, I've also worked on a variety of different projects that uh, you will come to see and hear in the, the not too distant future um, uh, that involve uh, integrating sound with uh, Breathwork, so the Breathonics app. Uh, that's pretty powerful. That's that's uh, that's showing some some great kind of uh, helpful toolkit for giving you energy or helping you to calm down and relax. Um, and beyond that, come and say hi on on Instagram, Tom Middleton Music. I'm um, on Twitter as well, less so these days. Uh, and and also uh, yes, there's there's obviously. Uh, a wealth of music that I've been creating over two or three decades that you can dig into, some of which the Global Communication album has been reissued and remastered this year, um, a sort of definitive collection, if you like, of the, the roots. So where I am now and where I was, it'll give you a good example of the, uh, let's say, the trajectory which I'm going. Well, thank you, Tom. It's been really fabulous having you talk to us, and um, I'm looking forward to hearing more. Thank you so very much, David. It's been a, a privilege and honor to chat with you. And uh, yes, I'm, I'm super excited for you know, the, the, the future for multi-sensory holistic approach to empathetic you know, uh, experiences. I, I think there's, um, there's the time has come to open the table to all the senses. Fabulous. Tom Middleton, sound designer and uh, composer, musician. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Next Level Experience Design. And please remember to subscribe and share with all your friends wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And don't forget to check out notes and links and other information like transcripts on the Next Level Experience Design webpage at simplecast.com. Also, follow me on social at LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for all of the information about upcoming shows and information on our guests who every day are taking it to the next level.